traveled all over the world. I played with all the great ones. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible to see over your rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? You stare in the air as if crying, beware. We love stories! It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's going to be a special hour today. In addition to some of our regular lineup of terrific stories from terrific tellers, we've got an old-time radio drama coming up for you in the second half of the hour. It's a Sherlock Holmes mystery called The Speckled Band, starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, a classic from the golden era of radio dramas. That's coming up again in the second half of the hour. You're going to hear stories as well from Joel Ben Izzy, the Bay Area storyteller, a story called The Old King and His Daughters. And you'll hear a story called The Wind and the Moon from Christopher Liebrich. We'll bring you an entry in the Radio Family Journal about one of my favorite food memories from when I was a kid, Mom's Grilled Peanut Butter and Jelly Sandwiches, if you can believe it. That's coming up. And, of course, we'll have a conversation with a friend, Don Shaline, about a favorite musical memory, a memory of a TV show theme song that you'll remember, too, if you're from a certain era. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm excited about this story. It's a Ted Fink story. Uh, tell us about the sax man. It starts out with an experience I think we might have all had. You know, when uh, a family friend comes over that you haven't seen since you were maybe like a toddler, yeah. knee high to a grasshopper, and uh, and they pinch your cheek, and you're supposed to remember who they are, but you don't. <laughs> right. You know, and, and you kind of just got to go along with it and be like, yeah, totally. That's yeah. great to see you. Um, it starts out with that, and as as he's talking to this guy, he he'd rather be watching his baseball game that's on at the moment. Yeah. And uh, as the conversation progresses, however, he begins to realize that this guy knows his knew his dad. Yeah. At the beginning of his dad's musical career, and he's really interested in 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 what happened um, because his dad never really talked about it, and yeah. so he kind of realizes, oh, I shouldn't have dismissed this guy right off the bat. Yeah. These people can be. You know, the keys that unlock doors that we don't know what's on the other side, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that's that's one of the magical things about this story. Sometimes we think that we have gathered all there is to gather about someone who's gone from us. Yeah. And then someone walks in the door who knows some things, you know, and that's that can be a real treasure trove. The Sax Man is the name of the story. Ted Fink is the teller. And we're happy to bring it to you on the Appleseed. After my father died in 1972, my mother moved to Florida. The reasons for the move were simple. It was cheaper, it was warmer, it was safer. And what was she going to do? Sit and wait for me to come around once a week to visit? Not my mom. Now, twice a year, she would come up north. And when she did, her dance card was always full because people really loved my mother. Not only was she a beautiful woman, but she was also vivacious and opinionated and just wonderful to be around. But she had the one thing that made her a great friend. She was a good listener. If your heart was breaking, so was hers. If you were happy, she was so happy for you. There wasn't a jealous bone in her body. 
But this story isn't about my mother. This story is about my mother's best friend's husband, Carl Waxman. I had to include my mom. It was almost like she was squeezing my elbow. Anyway, the plan for this particular night was that Carl was going to pick my mom up at my house and take her back to his, where Claire, his wife, was making the three of them dinner. I happened to walk into the foyer just as they were leaving. Oh, Ted, this is perfect timing. Ted, you remember Carl, don't you? Now, I hadn't seen Carl in 56 years. Maybe the last time I saw Carl, I was eight years old. But since my mom was squeezing my elbow, I knew I had to say, Sure, hi, Carl, how you doing? Actually, there was something familiar about Carl. I mean, he was a short man impeccably dressed. His face and hands looked like he had just washed them a thousand times. He still had a full head of wavy blonde hair. And as we looked at each other, we smiled, and I noticed that he was rocking back and forth as he stood there. My mother squeezed my elbow again, and she said, Yes, Ted, you know, Carl plays the saxophone. And I knew I had to say something. Oh, really? I said, Well, that's fantastic, Carl. Hey, listen, I just came out of the studio and I recorded one of my songs and Kenny Lancey, a great saxophone player, put a lead on it. Man, it it is really beautiful. When you bring mom back, if you'd like to hear it, just give me a call. He kind of rocked back and forth and said, sure, why not? It was more a hand gesture and a nod of the head than a verbalization. And then they left and I went into the kitchen to see my wife we talked for a while, and actually when I thought about it, I thought, geez, I hadn't actually told Carl the whole truth because I hadn't just finished the piece. I had finished it two years before, but the truth of the matter was I didn't think he would care because I really didn't think he'd ever get a chance to hear it. I just said it. I had to say something. My mom was squeezing my elbow. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, we had dinner, and then I went into the den, and I got into a Phillies game, It was about the ninth inning, 10.30 at night. The Phils had a couple of men on. There was a chance for them to win the game, and suddenly I hear, Oh, Ted, Carl's here. Oh, man, Carl's here. Not not right now. Oh, all right, maybe I can get this over real quick. I got up, and I ran into the living room, and I said, Hi, Carl, how you doing? I guess you want to hear that thing I did with Kenny. And I go into the living room, and Carl's standing in the middle of the living room, rocking back and forth. I said, sure, I'll find it for you and put it on, man. Yeah, let me look. Where did I put it? Oh, my God. Oh, here it is. Hey, Carl, sit down. Hey, man, sit down. I'm going to put this in. You're going to love this. But Carl didn't sit down. I got my remote. I put the tape in. I sat down on the sofa. I patted the sofa. I said, Carl, Carl, sit down. But Carl didn't sit down. He stayed standing in the middle of the living room, kind of rocking back and forth. And on came the music, and I kind of smiled because I liked this piece. And Kenny Lancey did put a fantastic lead on it. And it was on for about 20 seconds when suddenly Carl started talking. He started talking over the music. And I don't really know what he was saying because the truth of the matter is I was kind of upset that he was like talking over this piece. Was this what I left the Phillies game for? I said, shh, shh, call, call, listen, here, here it comes. Here comes that lead. He listened for about two seconds and said, nah, four chords, not my bag. Oh, really? Not your bag. Okay. At that moment, I couldn't wait for that piece to come to an end so I could click that tape out and get, I mean, the heck out of there. When it came to an end, I jumped up and I said, hey, Carl, take care, man. Catch you soon. And as I turned, he had a tape in his hand. 
you know, I, I, I'd really like you to hear something on this. I said, you, 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 you want me to hear it? Okay, man, sure, no problem. And I clicked it in, thinking that I was going to bust him like he just busted me. And on came some classical music. And he said, do you like classical? And I was just about to tell him that I did when he said, yeah, this is when I was lead clarinetist for the Philadelphia Orchestra. I tried to listen, but the truth of the matter is I couldn't hear too much. I could hear enough to know that he could really play, but he began talking over his own stuff. And suddenly I couldn't decide what was better, what he was saying or what he was playing. He had gotten his first horn when he was 16, and by the time he was 18, he was playing professionally. And you know who gave me my first job, he said? Your father. My father. Wow. A couple of minutes ago, here was a guy I didn't want to talk to, and now all I wanted to do was hear what he had to say next. I had known that my father was in show business. There had been some pictures and that great guitar that he gave me. His guitar, Martin 021. He had left the business, and I never knew why. As close as we were, and we were really close, he never talked about it. I never heard him play. And so I said to Carl, could he play? And Carl thought a minute. You know, Carl said, when I was coming up, your father had already made a name for himself. In those days, it was all about music. In those days, there was work for musicians. Every hotel had 20, 24 pieces. Every restaurant had a, had a band. People went out to listen. People went out to dance. And your father had a 20-piece orchestra. And your father was the house orchestra for the Adelphia Hotel at 39th and Chestnut. It was a great orchestra. And your father would stand up there with that baton and that big smile and that handsome face and that beautiful voice. They would play every day right up until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And on Sundays, in the summertime, on your grandmother's porch, all the great musicians would gather to play. And people would come from all over just to listen to them. And it was fantastic. Those afternoons were unbelievable. They were like concerts and they were beautiful. And that's where your father first heard me play. And he came over to me afterwards and he said, Carl, he said, you're great. He said, I'm going to get you work. And he did. He got me 17 straight weeks at the old Philadelphia Chinese restaurant. Wow, I said. Why did he leave? Why did he ever leave the business? Why? Because the times changed. The music changed. People stopped dancing. People stopped going out. Great musicians were standing on corners selling apples just to survive. Your father, he had to survive. He had a wife, he had a kid. He had to do something. He had another trade, he was an electrician, so that's where he went to make money to survive. Me, all I had was my horn. It was all I knew. So man, I blew. Hey, wait, here comes that thing I want you to hear. Here comes that thing. It was maybe 20, 25 pieces. It was the kind of orchestra that Frank Sinatra would stand in front of. But it wasn't Sinatra, it was Carl. He soared above the instrumentation like this great giant bird, and he flew. Each note a pearl, each note a gem, and he stayed out there, and he stayed up in the sky, and he spread his wings, and it was absolutely beautiful. And just when you thought you heard it all, 
He went beyond. He went way out there. And he carried it right through till the whole instrumentation faded away. And when it did, all I could say was, wow. He said, yeah. I did that two years ago in Hamburg, Germany. I was 82. It was my last gig. I made a living in this business for over 60 years. I traveled all over the world. I played with all the great ones. He rattled off a series of names. Some I knew, some I thought were fantastic, and some I didn't know. And he started telling stories about being in the business and about loving the business. Yeah. When I played for the Queen of England and shook her hand, there were some good times. There were some hard times, but they were glorious years. And now, standing in my living room, rocking back and forth as though he was still playing, it was all behind him. In the corner of my living room is the guitar that my father gave me, the old Martin 21, that beautiful guitar. And for the first time, Carl looked at it, and he kind of recognized it, and he smiled, and he said, was that you playing rhythm on that thing with that kid Kenny? And I nodded that he was. He said, yeah, man, he said, I thought I recognized that. Man, that guitar had beautiful tone. And you know, your father could play. He could really play. You know, I said, I never heard him play. And Carl thought a minute. And he said, well, did he ever hear you play? And I nodded that he had. And he said, well, maybe that's more important. And suddenly, I felt so good inside. And I was so glad that I had taken the time to listen, to listen and hear the music and the stories of that great sax man, Mr. Carl Waxman. Ted Fink with a story called The Sax Man. And I've been listening to it not only with you, but also with Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, I love that story. Mm-hmm. I was, was excited really nice. to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a thing you pointed to uh, before the story, and that was kind of that moment when somebody comes through the door and you kind of don't want to engage, mm-hmm. you, you know. Now, he, he gets over that threshold in a way that really brings a lot of richness into both their lives, you know. Yeah. But I remember when I was a kid, sometimes that threshold was tricky to get across, and and I came up to that threshold a lot. Like, we had a lot of family who lived out of town, you know. Okay. Or we had dear family friends who would move far away from us, and yeah. then after a few years, we'd go and visit, right? And these people were all dear to me, or had been, you know. Yeah. But a, a time goes by, and and you have to cross that threshold again. You know, there's a moment Absolutely. of awkwardness, even among people who love each other. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I found myself thinking about some of those moments as we were listening to that story together. Yeah, you know, and I I tend to think of when my dad took me mountain biking for the first time, and I absolutely hated it. Um, (laughs) And it was a similar experience in that way. It's something that he loved, and I love my dad. Yeah. And the first time I went, I hated it. I wasn't in shape. 
it was miserable, but now <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And so I get to share that. Yeah. You cross that threshold, walk into a world that you that you wind up loving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing us that story today. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago, you heard a story by Ted Fink, a story called The Sax Man. And there's a lot coming up this hour on The Appleseed. In just a little bit, you're going to hear an old-time radio drama from the golden era of such things, a Sherlock Holmes mystery called The Adventure of the Speckled Band, starring the great Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. And that's coming up in the second half of the hour. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's a favorite food memory, and it's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My mother lives almost 700 miles away from me. We talk all the time on the phone, a couple of times a week maybe, but we're not in the same room very often. I've got to admit that these days, part of the reason I call her a lot is that I want to stay in her mind. It's a mind that works differently than it used to, and many times over the course of a single conversation, she'll ask me where I'm living these days, and I answer as many times as she asks. As I remember the times we've spent together, I remember my mom's food. When I was a kid, I thought there was only one way to cook stuff, the way my mom cooked it. My mom used to make us grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and we loved them. Peanut butter and grape jelly or strawberry jam between pieces of Wonder Bread, buttered on the outside to grill up crispy and buttery. And of course, she'd cut it in half on the diagonal so we could eat it in two manageable goes. We'd take a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich over just about anything else, any day of the week when we were kids. I thought everybody all over America was eating grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like we did at my house. And I've met grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches since then. It wasn't such a unique novelty that I think my mom invented it, but it is true that I measure every grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich I've ever had against my mom's. I used to think there was only one way to make chicken, like my mom made it with the chicken coated in melted butter and a crunchy coating made of instant potato flakes on the outside, baked to golden brown perfection. To my little mind, this was not just the best way to cook chicken. It was the only way. You had to do this. Well, I've since learned that only my mom cooks chicken that way. At least, I've never met another chicken cooked exactly like my mom used to cook it. My mom liked to make tacos for us, and again, I thought my mom's way of making tacos was the only way to do it. Not just the best way, but the only way. But since I left home when I was in college, I've never met another taco like the tacos my mom used to make. She'd heat oil in a pan and deep fry each round corn tortilla, not until it was crunchy, but just until it was hot, and then she'd serve the tortillas on a big plate between paper towels. The other night, we made tacos at my house, and we don't prepare tortillas exactly that way. The tacos we made were delicious, but I have to admit that after everyone had eaten and gone about the business of the evening, 
I went back to the kitchen and, lost in thoughts of my mom, took some of the remaining tortillas and put some oil in a pan and deep-fried them, and then used them in my own little taco after-party. But it might be that the days of my mom preparing meals for the people she loves are over. My stepdad, Dennis, is a great cook, and when we're together, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen, and my mom, though, mostly enjoys the food made by the rest of us. Like I said, her mind works differently now than it has. Her eyes, too, are different eyes than the eyes of her youth. And a lot of the time, the food we make for her is the same food she used to make for us when we were small. I'll always remember, I think, the last meal my mom made for me by herself. It was six or seven years ago, and my mom and Dennis were living just a few miles away from me in the city, and I had meetings there once every couple of weeks, and I'd drop by after the meetings for conversation with my folks. And the last time this happened, we sat at the kitchen table, and Cosmo, my parents' dog, came and put his head against my leg, and I scratched his ears, and we talked and laughed. The humans mostly talked and laughed. And in the midst of the conversation, I didn't even realize my mom was making food in the kitchen. But there came a moment when she came to the table and put down a plate of blue and white china in front of me and a tumbler full of orange juice next to it. And on that plate, there was a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich, cut in half diagonally, like when I was a kid. And there was one for Dennis, too. And I don't think I've ever enjoyed a sandwich more. It's a deep well, the well of my childhood, and my mom being able to go back there and pull a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich forward into the present day to help us all through a 21st century afternoon has been instructive for me. I've had a lot of opportunity, a lot of need even, for rescue during occasional moments of grief or stress since then. And as I'm casting about for help, I can do a lot worse than to go back to the simple memories of the food from my mother's kitchen. It's clear to me that in a lot of ways, that's what she's doing herself. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. Coming up in just a minute, you're going to hear that radio drama, old-time stuff from the golden era of such things, an adventure called uh, The Speckled Band, a Sherlock Holmes tale with Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes. You're going to really love that, and we're going to love bringing it to you. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, and the songs that we remember, and certainly from the tales that we tell, teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations, and talking about the way that those stories get down into our hearts and minds and the shape they take there is something that we love to do with friends here on The Appleseed. And I'm pleased to be joined in The Appleseed studio by Don Shaline, a longtime friend of the show, I gotta say, and a guy who has more music in his head than most people knew existed. Don Shaline, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. It's great to be here, Sam. <laughs> you know, you and I both know that yeah. songs 
can just be the key that unlocks the door to all kinds of memories. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and you know, I think I think I'm not alone in saying that some of the most powerful songs and memories come from that volatile, scary, volcanic, <laughs> wonderful time called adolescence yeah. when you kind of first walk through a room and notice that cute girl over there that has already, you've seen her before, but something's different now. And That's there's right. some kind of a feel that it's like, whoa. <laughs> and about the same time that this was happening, I, I was there when the Beatles first played on Ed Sullivan. And, you know, I, I kind of didn't get it. It was kind of like, oh, what's the a big deal? Yeah. I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> and then I kind of started getting that. But my real turning point came when that first drum roll and out of the speakers of the television comes here we come walking down the street <laughs> we get the funniest looks from everyone we meet hey hey, hey we're, we're the, the monkeys, monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> i love it uh, yeah <laughs> it was just that um and, and and most of the power from that yeah the music was fun and everything yeah. was fun they were funny guys but boy, did the girls like them. The girls chased them, and the girls thought they were the cutest. Thing. And I thought, I got to get me that job. Yeah. What they're doing, <laughs> I want that. <laughs> Was that the beginning of, uh, I, I mean, you're, you're a musician of some experience. <laughs> some. And, and some of that. Uh, that's where it started. That's yeah. where it started. That was totally where it started. All it's right. like, I can't really play anything. I don't know how to play I mean, that one guy doing the maracas, I think I could handle that. But uh, I thought, I got to figure out how to play an instrument or yeah. something because this band thing really looks pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you play a, a lot of different instruments. I do, and, now. And w- <laughs> w- what, was the, what was the doorway for you? What did, what did you, you? You saw the monkeys, you heard that song, and sure. you thought, I got to learn how to play something. Right. And I actually started out as a lead singer. All right. Because, okay. again, I was like, oh, I don't know how to play these other things. <laughs> but then, you know, band members quit and different things happened, and I thought, I I better learn something else here. And so I started trying to pick up other instruments. <laughs> <laughs> and now you play piano. Piano, you, you flute. Play flute. You yeah. play all, all, cowbell. That's it's all there. <laughs> I actually started, my very first instrument that I, real instrument was the drums. Hmm. And again, it was because I thought, well, I've never had any music lessons. So drums, that's got to be easy, yeah. right? There Which, are no notes. No notes in drums. But boy, I was wrong. Yeah, drums yeah, are hard. Yeah, you know, you you watch a you watch a a, a band play. Yeah. And you kind of know how to you you, you sort of know how to make sense of what's going on on the guitar, and you yeah. sort of know how to make sense out of what's going on the keyboard, the bass. Yeah. But the drums are a magical mystery, mm, aren't they? Especially because it's four appendages. Yeah, that's and right. It's it's like. Yeah, wait a minute. This hand's doing this hand, that, and the feet. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you appreciate the drums more and more the more about music that you yeah. know, yes. right? Uh, and yeah. it, it is, as you say, you know, there you've got a guy who e- each appendage knows what to do independent of the others, which yeah. can often be pretty incredible. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So here's, so here's my question. You hear the monkeys. Yeah. You start singing. You know, you start singing. You start yeah. learning instruments. And, and uh, did it work? I think that's the question well, on everybody's lips, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In college, you know, when I was doing band and, uh, uh, you know, it, it the, I had a lot of fun with uh, – you know, meeting people 
of the, <laughs> the opposite sex as, <laughs> and and uh, you know kind of saying oh yeah yeah that's me up there singing and stuff it yeah. it, it was very fun but but um, uh, I do have to say that it was quite disappointing when I found out the monkeys weren't often playing those instruments. <laughs> <laughs> We should hear a little bit of that great theme song. Here's a little bit of the theme song from the Monkees television show. Oh yeah, you know a lot. A lot of people would look at the monkeys and think, "Oh, that's just a just a that's TV just like a cast. TV carbon copy of the right, trying of the to Beatles. cash in yeah. on the success of the Beatles." Right. But the monkeys were a heck of a band in well, there. Right? They really were. Yeah. I, um, I mean, Davy Jones was kind of a this this Broadway player, you yeah. know. That uh, uh, in fact, I remember him being on the Beatles and uh, the Beatles debut. He was there in the cast of Oliver right before they came on. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and Mike Nesmith, of course, great writer. And, sure. And, uh, and uh, Mickey Dolenz was an actor but yeah. could really sing. And, yeah. And uh, then uh, Peter Tork, was, he played. He played keyboards sure, and yeah. things. So. And an, you know, an assembled band, you know, yeah, like yeah. A, the, the quintessential example of a band assembled by executives yes. for a project. Yes. You know? But again, they, they wound up really kind of being very charming, and they oh, wound yeah. up having having hits. And, Big hits. And and the television show was great. Well, you I know? thought so. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, boy, the, 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 the life of music that Don Shaline has lived <laughs> as a result of thinking that he might be able to meet girls because yeah, right. of hearing the Monkees theme song. <laughs> <laughs> It's always fun to think about the memories brought on by a piece of music. And, of course, we hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. Don Shaline, thanks for joining me here on The Appleseed. Thank you, Sam. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And it was a pleasure to have Don Shaline with us. We'll be sure to have him back. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around for The Adventure of the Speckled Band, a Sherlock Holmes mystery from the golden era of radio dramas here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. something we're kind of excited about on the Appleseed. Imagine it's 1945, and after dinner, the family has gathered around the big radio in the living room. It's a big night for all of you because you're about to hear the latest episode in a radio series that brings to vivid life the adventures of the most famous detective in the world. As the family gets comfy, Dad crosses the living room to click on the radio, and when he does, the adventure begins. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) 
and so would begin an exciting evening around the radio. And on this episode of The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, it's The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Now here's the setup. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are about to receive a visit from Helen Stoner, the stepdaughter of the cruel Dr. Grimsby Roylott. It seems that Dr. Roylott and his two stepdaughters have inherited something of a fortune, a fortune that as long as they're all alive must be split between the three of them. But not too long ago, Helen's sister was found dead inside her locked bedroom at Stoke Moran, the family home. Helen suspects their cruel stepfather has murdered her sister for a bigger share of the fortune and fears that she'll be next. Can Holmes and Watson expose the killer and keep Helen alive? Well, Helen comes to 221B Baker Street to get their help. She's shown into the study by Mrs. Hudson, the faithful housekeeper. Come in, my dear. Thank you. Uh, Miss Stoner, I'm, I'm so glad to see you again. How do you do, Dr. Watson? And this must be your friend. Yes, Miss Stoner, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Sit down by the fire, won't you? Yes, yes, please do, my dear. Hello, you're... You're trembling with cold. It's not cold that makes me shiver. Uh, Dr. Watson has already given me several hints as to your present problem, as well as having refreshed my memory as to the circumstances of your sister's death. My problem is a simple enough one, Mr. Holmes. I'm... I'm waiting to be murdered. No, 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 my uh, dear Please girl. be a trifle more explicit, Miss Stoner. Very well, Mr. Holmes. My fiancé is leaving for the Far East today. When he leaves, I shall be alone with my stepfather at Stoke Moran. He plans to murder me just as he murdered my sister. What makes you say that, Miss Stoner? Many strange things have happened recently. For instance, he's just moved me into the bedroom in which my sister died. Well, what reason did he give for changing your room? That my old one needed repainting. It didn't need it. But Dr. Roylett did need to move me into that horrible room. And other things have happened. I, I've heard the music again. Music? What music? My sister first heard it a few days before she died. I heard it myself on that... Dreadful night she breathed her last. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I'm terrified. Don't worry, my dear. Please don't worry anymore. You have friends to help you now. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No, of course not. Now, this music, does it seem to come from inside the house or outside? Well, it, it's hard to say. It, there's one other thing that puzzles me, Mr. Holmes. Oh, what's that? My sister's dying words. As she lay in my arms, she gasped out two words. Oh, what were they? Banned and speckled. Sometimes I thought it was merely the wild talk of delirium, and sometimes that it referred to a band of people. Oh, yes. Mr. Turner, how long is it since you heard this strange music that you've told us about? I heard it last night. Last your fiancé leaves today, you say? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, Miss Turner, I shall do everything I can to help you. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible to see over your rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? I, I think so. He told me this morning that he intended to take a late train home tonight. Ah, that's splendid. Watson, out with the timetable, old fellow, and look up the trains to Stoke Moran. Right, you are, Holmes. You're listening to The Appleseed and the 1945 radio drama The Adventure of the Speckled Band, based on a story written almost 130 years ago by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In this story, just after Helen Stoner leaves Holmes and Watson, her cruel stepfather, Dr. Grimsby Roylott, pushes his way into the apartments at 221B Baker Street. He has followed Helen there and threatens Holmes and Watson not to get involved. In fact, he bends the 
the fireplace poker into a pretzel and shakes it at Holmes to emphasize his point. But Holmes and Watson coolly see Dr. Roylott out, and once he has left, they meet Helen at Stoke Moran to investigate. Here's more of the adventure of the speckled band on the Appleseed. Oh, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I'm so relieved that you've come. But don't you think my stepfather might have followed you down here? You have to take that chance, Miss Stoner. A few hours' delay might mean the difference between your life and death. It was imperative that we examine this bedroom of yours before Dr. Roylott returns. Anyway, my dear, you mustn't worry anymore. We're here in your house, and we're going to take good care of you, no matter what harm befalls you. Thank you, Dr. Watson. So this is the room in which your sister died, is it? Hmm, it's much as I pictured it. Uh, and Dr. Roylott's room adjoins this one, you say, Miss Stella? Yes, Doctor, on that side. The room which adjoins it on the other side is my regular bedroom. The one that's being so conveniently painted, eh? Yes. Well, let's examine this room. No trap doors or sliding panels, I suppose. It sounds solid enough, Holmes. Yes, I think it is. Hello, what's this? Are you aware that this bed is clamped to the floor, Miss Stoner? Why, no, no, Mr. Holmes, I, I didn't know that. What an extraordinary thing. Was the bed in your other room anchored also? I know, I don't think it was. Very illuminating. And this bell pull hanging against the wall above your bed. Oh, that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, but if you want to ring. There's another one on the other wall over there. Now, why this one? Well, I, I don't know. My stepfather made a number of changes after we came here. Yes, quite a burst of activity, apparently. And it took some strange shapes. Why are you standing on the bed, Holmes? I'm curious, my dear fellow. Aha. Uh -huh. It may interest you to know that this bell rope is fastened to a brass hook. There's no wire attachment. It's a dummy. A dummy? But why? There's a small screen above it. It's a ventilator, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Yes. A ventilator leading into your stepfather's room. Curious. I notice there's no means of opening the ventilator on this side. It can only be operated from your stepfather's room next door. I wonder if you'd mind taking us in there. Of course, Mr. Holmes. Follow me. What do you make of it, Holmes? There's devil's work afoot, old chap. Here we are, Mr. Holmes. It's much the same as the other room. A bit bigger, perhaps. That large safe against the wall seems to be an unusual piece of bedroom furniture. What is it, Miss Dona? Uh, my stepfather's business papers. Oh, yes. You've seen inside it, then? Only once, some years ago. I remember that it was full of documents. What's this saucer of milk doing on top of it? Does Dr. Roylott keep a cat? No, but he does have a cheetah and a baboon as pets. He brought them with him from India. Well, Holmes, a cheetah is just a big cat. Uh, true, but I doubt if a saucer of milk would go very far in satisfying the appetite of a cheetah. Well, I think I've seen enough. This matter is too serious for hesitation. Your life may depend upon your following and my instructions, Miss Homer. I'll do anything you say, Mr. Holmes, anything. Hmm. Is that village inn I see through the uh, trees from this window? Yes, the Queen's Arms. Uh, your bedroom windows would be visible from there. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Very well, then. Watson and I will go there now and obtain accommodations. When your stepfather returns, you must confine yourself to your room on the pretense of a headache. You follow me? Perfectly. When Dr. Roylott returns for the night, you must open your bedroom window and put your lamp on the sill as a signal to us at the inn. Then withdraw quietly to your usual bedroom, the one that's being painted. I'm sure that you could manage there for one night. Of course. But what will you do? When we get your sig signal, Dr. Watson and I will come here and spend the night in your dead sister's room. We are going to solve this mystery of the dummy bell rope and the unusual ventilator and the strange music in the night. <laughs>
You're listening to The Adventure of the Speckled Band from The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Families would gather round the radio in 1945 when this radio drama was made and listen to a Sherlock Holmes adventure together just about every week. And in this one, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, just as they said they would, head to the Queen's Arms Inn to watch for Helen's signal. They wait for a long time, and then, deep in the night, it comes, a lantern in the window. Holmes and Watson creep secretly from the inn to the house and into the mysterious bedroom to watch for... for what? Well, here's the conclusion of the adventure of the speckled band on the Appleseed. of death. Have your lantern ready, Watson. Now, Watson, now! Great heavens, it's a snake slithering down the bell rope. Ah. You can't kill it without stick holes out of the way. Let me get a shot at it. I'm trying to drive it back the way it came. Get out. Ah. There it goes. Back through the ventilator. Oh. What a fiendish plan. Scott, what's that? I think the devil has turned on its master. Come on, Watson, into Dr. Roylott's room. Dr. Roylott! Dr. Roylott! Dr. Dr. Look at him sprawled on the bed. Look at his eyes. Yes. And see what is coiled around his forehead. It's the snake. Yes, the band. The speckled band. He's dead, Holmes. Yes. He's been bitten by the deadliest snake in the world. The Indian swamp arrow. Its deadly fangs produce death within ten seconds. Well, Watson... Violence does, in truth, recoil upon the violent, and the schema falls into the pit, which he digs for another. What should we do now, Holmes? We must remove the macabre headgear from the dead doctor and return the snake to its den. Ah, then I suggest that we tell Miss Stoner that there's no more danger under this roof. After that, we can turn the matter over to the local police. Our work is done. Dr. Watson, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you brought me back here to Baker Street. My it would have been inhuman to leave you in that house of horror and death. We have a spare bedroom, and Mrs. Hudson is a motherly and understanding woman, and I can assure you that Dr. Watson and I will be delighted to have you stay with us here until you've decided on your future plans. Yes, of course we will, my dear. As a matter of fact, it would be rather refreshing to have a a touch of youth about the place. You're both so (laughs) kind. Mr. Holmes, I think it's wonderful how you foiled my stepfather's devilish plans. Yes, wasn't it a remarkable example of logical deduction? No, it wasn't, old fellow. When we examined the fatal room, I drew the obvious conclusion. The dummy bell rope, the ventilator, and the immovable bed. Yes, old fellow. It instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something coming through the ventilator and traveling to the bed. I once thought of a snake. 
When I saw the saucer of milk on top of the safe, my suspicions crystallized into certainties. Oh, it was a fiendish plot. Yes, an extremely clever one, too. Exactly. My stepfather must have trained the snake to return to him when he played the music. Yes, he put it through the ventilator with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week, but sooner or later she must fall a victim. Thank heaven I came to you, Mr. Holmes. Amen to that, you Mr. Holmes. You know, Holmes, if you hadn't lashed at the snake with your stick... I bet it wouldn't have turned back on its master. True, old chap. In that way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Grimsby Rylett's death. <laughs> but I, I can't say it's a fact that's likely to weigh too heavily on my conscience. The Adventure of the Speckled Band, part of the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. This episode was first broadcast in 1945, just a few months after the end of World War II. And as a little historical tidbit, I'll play you the way this episode ended, the way a lot of these episodes ended, with Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson speaking directly to the audience. Before I go, I want to say that everyone of our friends bought war bonds to help our boys win the war. Now let's all buy victory bonds to help bring our boys back home again. Yes, and let's buy victory bonds to make sure that the men who were wounded will get the finest possible care. Those same victory bonds will help make the GI Bill of Rights a success too. And they'll help provide for the families of those men who gave everything, including their lives. The men of our armed forces finished their job. Now let's finish ours. Buy victory bonds. And that's it, a Sherlock Holmes adventure starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as the world's greatest detective and the world's greatest detective's sidekick. In 1945, when the show you just heard first hit the airwaves, families listened to stories like this on the radio after dinner. And not just families at home, members of the armed forces serving all across the world listened too on Armed Forces Radio. Thanks for joining us for a little piece of radio storytelling history on The Appleseed. Next, we've got a story from Joel Ben Izzy, a storyteller from the Bay Area. This is a story called The Old King and His Daughters in a fictional kingdom, one ruled by a king with four daughters, is where this tale takes place. And at an old age, the king decides he needs a break from ruling, and so he leaves. But before he departs, he gifts each daughter one grain of rice. What do each of the daughters do with their grain of rice? Well, that's the story. The old king and his daughters from Joel Ben Izzy here on The Appleseed. There was once a king who'd ruled in his kingdom for a long time. He was old, he was tired. So he called his four daughters together and said, my daughters, I've ruled long enough. It's time for me to go. All my life I've been sitting here watching the kingdom. I'm going to go away for 10 years. And then 
I'll come back. And one of you shall rule after I'm gone. Well, the daughters were shocked to hear this. And as he was about to leave, he said, I have something for you, a gift. They looked at him. And from his pocket, he drew out four grains of rice and gave one to each daughter. It was a strange gift. They looked at them and looked at their father, and off he went. Now, they didn't know quite what to do with these grains of rice, but the oldest daughter went to the palace jeweler. She said, make me a box. Make me a beautiful little box. I want it made of gold and silver and brass. I want it lined with velvet. And within that box, she placed that grain. The second daughter said, this grain of rice must be very valuable. He wouldn't have given it to me otherwise. And so she climbed up into her closet, and in the very back part of her closet in the corner, she hid that grain, saying, anyone who might rob me can take whatever they want, but I'll always have this. The third daughter looked at this and said, a grain of rice? My father's going away for 10 years, and he gives me a grain of rice? He's nuts. She threw it in the garbage. She said, in 10 years, he'll be back. I'll get another one. His eyes aren't that good now. They won't be any better then. <laughs> he won't know the difference. That last daughter took that grain of rice and sat there looking at it for a long time, not sure what to do with it for the better part of a year. And the years went by. And sometime later, an old man returned. He said, I'm back. They talked about where he'd been and what had happened in the palace since he left. And then he asked them, do you have the grain of rice that I gave you? That first daughter went to her room and she brought out this beautiful box. Inside the box was that grain of rice in perfect condition. She said, there it is. I see. The second daughter said, wait here, father. She went to her room. She climbed up to the top of her closet and from the dust pulled out this grain of rice, it had dried and broken over the years. It was brittle, but there it was, the same grain. Ah, very nice. The third daughter said, just a moment, Father. She ran to the kitchen, found a bag of rice, pulled out a grain and said, there it is. You can't tell the difference, can you? Ah, so I can't. And you, my fourth daughter, have you the grain of rice that I gave you? And she said, no, no, I don't. Why? Your other sisters have theirs. She said, Father, when you gave me that grain of rice, to be honest, I didn't know what to do with it. I looked at it for a long time. And then, after a year of looking, it occurred to me that a grain of rice is a seed. So I planted it. And that year I got seven grains of rice. Well, I, I planted them. And each one of them gave me seven grains of rice. And I kept planting them and planting them. And now as she spoke, she opened up a curtain. And there, behind the palace, was an entire field of rice. She said, I don't have your grain, but it's there. That whole field came from that grain of rice. He said, ah, you shall be queen. For you know what to do with a treasure. A treasure is not meant to be displayed and never used, or hidden away, or thrown away and then brought back. No, a treasure is meant to be used and passed on for years and years to come. And thus it is with stories 
If you've enjoyed the stories you've heard today, please pass them on. And I thank you very much for joining me. Izzy with the old king and his daughters here on the Appleseed. We're going to wrap up today with a story from Christopher Liebrick. And uh, this is a story called The Wind and the Moon. And in this story, the wind has a grudge against the moon and believes that it can blow the moon out. Well, it blows until the moon disappears. And it's content with itself until, of course, the moon reappears. So the wind tries again, huffing and puffing until the moon is gone once more, and then it comes back. Well, that's just the beginning of the story. The story is The Wind and the Moon by Christopher Liebrick. It's from a collection called Good Stories from All Over. And we're glad to wrap up with this tale today on The Appleseed. The Wind and the Moon Said the wind to the moon, I will blow you out. You stare in the air as if crying, beware, always looking what I am about. I hate to be watched. I will blow you out. The wind blew hard, and out went the moon. So, deep on a heap of clouds to sleep, down lay the wind and slumbered soon, muttering low, I've done for that moon. He turned in his bed. She was there again, on high in the sky with her one ghost eye. The moon shone white and alive and plain, said the wind. I will blow you out again. The wind blew hard, and the moon grew slim. With my sledge and my wedge, I have knocked off her edge. I will blow, said the wind, right fierce and grim, and the creature will soon be slimmer than slim. He blew, and he blew, and she thinned to a thread. One puff more's enough to blow her to snuff. One good puff more where the last was bred, and glimmer, glimmer, glum will go that thread. He blew a great blast, and the thread was gone. In the air nowhere was a moonbeam bare. Larger and nearer the shy stars shone. Sure and certain the moon was gone. The wind, he took to his revels once more. On down and in town, a merry mad clown. He leaped and hollowed with whistle and roar. When there was that glimmering thread once more, he flew in a rage, he danced and blew. But in vain was the pain of his bursting brain. For still the moon scrap the broader grew, the more that he swelled his big cheeks and blew. 
Slowly she grew till she filled the night and shone on her throne in the sky alone. A matchless, wonderful, silvery light, radiant and lovely, the queen of the night. Said the wind, What a marvel of power am I! With my breath in good faith I blew her to death. First blew her away right out of the sky, then blew her in. What a strength am I! But the moon, she knew not of the silly affair, for high in the sky with her one white eye, motionless miles above the air, she never had heard the great wind blare. The Wind and the Moon, told for you by Christopher Liebrick here on The Appleseed. What a pleasure to bring these tales to you. So fun to bring that Sherlock Holmes mystery to you, an old-time radio drama from the golden era of radio dramas, Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes, Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.